What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. And, you know, we continue to live in really extraordinary times for some people. Frankly, these times have been this way for a while for many of us. But uh, we have like this, you know, seemingly to awareness and consciousness. And so I want to respect that. I want to respect where we are. And, you know, we've actually shifted up the our interview schedule and we're having more and more pointed conversations about the reality of white supremacy. So you've probably noticed a few episodes. We're going to continue to do that. You know, I shared on Twitter a couple of days ago that like, I think my baseline is just much angrier these days. And I'm, 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 I'm at peace with that. Um, and so with all that being said, you know, we have conversations on living corporate that center marginalized voices at work. We do that um, by engaging thought leaders from across the spectrum to really have just authentic discussions. Today, we have a phenomenal guest, just like we do every single week, but it makes it no less true that we have a great guest today, Dr. Tema Oaken. Tema has spent many years working for the social justice community. For over 10 of those years, she worked in partnership with the late and beloved Kenneth Jones as part of the Change Work Training Group and now facilitates long-term anti-racism, anti-oppression work as a member of the DR Works Collaborative. She is a skilled facilitator, bringing both an anti-racist lens and commitment to supporting personal growth and development within the context of institutional and community mission. She holds a BA from Oberlin College, a master's in adult education from NC State University, a in C. Greensboro, and is on the faculty of the Educational Leadership Department at the National Lewis University in Chicago. She is active in Middle East peace and justice work with Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions USA. Dr. Oaken, how are you? I'm great, and I, I want to apologize up front because some of those biographical facts are no longer true. I left the faculty of uh, NLU several years ago, and I'm now active with Jewish Voice for Peace. Just to update everybody so that they don't think that you or I are lying about yeah, thank you. No, no, thank you for correcting me on that. Thank you. I appreciate that. So, so you know, you, you've been in this work for quite a while. Like, we talked, you know, some months ago, actually, before my daughter was born and oh, you know beautiful daughter thank you very much uh yes yes you've seen her yeah she looks great in fact she's um she's getting bigger every day it's just it's so cool like she's changing all the time what i'd like to know though if you've ever seen anti-racist anti-state sanctioned violence protests like this in your lifetime in terms of just scale and scope um you know you you gave me that question ahead of time and and i would i want to say both yes and no um, and I want to say yes, because I lived during the Vietnam War protest time period, and I lived during the AIDS protest time, and the growth of the LGBTQ movement. And I, I do want to acknowledge that the grief and rage and resistance that we're seeing today is part of a longer legacy of people who have been full of grief and rage and resistance before us, so that we don't um, we don't isolate ourselves, and we also take credit for. Um, this particular moment, which is uh, unique in the sense of the, the reach, the brilliance, the clarity about the demands. I'm, I'm very excited about you know the defend the police direction that this is taking, and so it's a yes and no answer. I'm so excited to be alive in this moment, and uh, I feel like I was honored to live through those other moments as well. And, you know, it's interesting because it's easy to kind of forget about the history of protest or the history of like mm-hmm. work. Um, and so right. so then like things kind of come in cycles. And so 
you know, new voices right. come up in new generations and, and it's almost as if these conversations have never been had before. But like, I'd right. like to get right. your perspective on really like just the, these concepts, like the concept of whiteness and, and then also like the concept of anti-racism. And I know those are big questions. I'm going to give you space, but I'd, I'd love just to hear you talk about that. Well, I think part of what's, what's really unique about this moment is that these concepts are more broadly understood within the, the resistance movement that we're seeing now than they ever have been in my lifetime. So that part is definitely true. When I started doing this work a gazillion years ago, really years ago or so, you know, a lot of people, there was not this, the, the, what I would call, I don't want to use the word sophisticated, so the deep mm. understanding about how, um, what whiteness is, how white supremacy operates, how, how white supremacy is the culture that we're swimming in, how it informs who we are, although it doesn't define who we are. There, there was not that, that clarity. And, and I feel like I've been part of the generations of people who've helped think about, develop, and you know, I'm not taking credit for it. I'm being, I'm part of the wave of people who sure. uh, under, started, understood that, that it was important to, to ground us in understanding that, sort of understanding the ways that white supremacy, capitalism, patriarchy, all these systems of oppression have really shaped who we are, and, and we need to understand how they operate if we're going to do something different and have a different vision. What I'll say is that I think, and this might be one of the questions you're going to ask later, but I think that the, the thing that we need to be careful about is that white supremacy and capitalism and patriarchy are very, very ingenious. And what we've seen happen in every movement that has ever occurred historically in our country is that they get diverted from a justice focus to an access focus. And that capitalism and white supremacy know how to lure us just enough to say, we're going to let you have power of a certain extent in our institutions. We're going to um, let you have access. We're going to uh, say right. good things about you. Right. Um, but don't rock the boat too much. They're just going to defund the police. It's too, it's too vague. It's, you don't have a, a plan. It's, you know, when we talk about access to health care, people don't demand necessity. It's like, yes, we have a vision. We have a vision of communities where the billions of dollars that are spent on militarized police are spent on schools and community centers and making sure people have enough food to eat. That's the vision that we have, calling that defund the police, and that's what we're going to do and not get distracted by. So part of the backlash is going to be fierce and, and hateful and violent, but the more dangerous part of the backlash is going to be accommodation. It's interesting to your point around like respectability, right? And so like how people yeah. use the concept of civility like as a cudgel, right. right? To really stymie progression. You know, we had Dr. Robin D'Angelo on Living Corporate a few months ago and we talked about her work in studying white fragility. And you know, it was a great discussion and not but yeah. <laughs> not but but I've I've listened to perspectives uh, on how white fragility is not necessarily, you know, anti-racist work. Can you share your perspective on that? Sure. One of the dangers of our movement, and I, you know, I love our movement, and I love how, I love many things about it. One of the dangers of our movement, though, is that we can get really rich about what being in the movement or what activism is. And I, my feeling, is that, so I'm 68 years old, I've been around a long time, and my point in my life is that we need it all. We need it all. This is not a competition about, um, you know, who's, who's doing it right and who's doing it best and, who's, and, yeah. and where the focus needs to be. Yeah. Um, so our, our frame, the way that um, DR works, the collaborative has also uh, been closed for about three or four years. All of our materials are on our website, which 
we can share the address later. Um, yeah. But the, the, what we, our frame is that sympathy and racism show up on three levels, on the personal level, the ways that we are with each other and ourselves, on the cultural level, uh, the beliefs and values uh, and standards and norms of the group, groups of people that we're operating within, including sort of white supremacy culture overall, and then our procedures and practices of institutions. And our, one of our racial equity principles is that you have to work on all three levels. And so what I hear Rob, Robin saying, and I think it's really important, is that those of us who are white, we work pretty consistently on our conditioning, the constant invitation that we are extended to join whiteness and in joining whiteness to both uh, disconnect from, uh, from people of color, disconnect from other white people, and disconnect from ourselves, because that's what the invitation is. An example of white fragility is if you are angry, if you are in full grief about what, what's happening, and my fragility says, well, you need to tone it down uh, because I can't, you know, I, I can only accept you if it comes to me in a certain kind of package. Right. Then we've, complete, we've completely disconnected. Mm-hmm. I've disconnected from you, and I've disconnected from myself because I'm not allowing myself to feel my own grief and rage, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because I'm so, I'm so scared. I'm so scared of yours. I'm certainly not going to feel my own. So I think, I think what, what you're speaking to, you know, there's a thing that people say about white people and, and navel-gazing, and we just you know, like to navel-gaze. <laughs> and, and what I like to, you know, we like to agonize, and, and Maurice Mitchell talks about how his liberation or uh, the liberation of black people, of people of color, is not tied up with my anxiety as a white person about getting it right. And so I think that there's this balance between all doing our personal work, because all of us are, are have have invitations extended to us by, by white supremacy in one form or another. So all of us are doing work on our internalized stuff and and um, then continuing to be in the world in relationship with figuring out what our role in this uh, in this resistance movement is. So it's not an either or. It's very much to me a both and because yeah. if we don't do our personal work, then the way that we're going to show up is just going to replicate all the dynamic and clinging to power for its own sake, not understanding who we're accountable to and mm. posturing and you know just things that aren't helpful so um and fear of our fear and all those things so i think it's a both end very much i appreciate it. and i i agree right i think one white fragility is just so real and yeah. it creates so many barriers and frankly and causes so much harm yeah. in, in ways that we don't even consider it like literally every single day. And because white supremacy is, is such a reality, white fragility impact behaviors of black and brown folks, even when white people aren't around. So to make sure that, that those who are in power are examining and interrogating themselves, like that's, that's critical. That's critical. Yeah. That, that doesn't, that yeah. doesn't mean that it's the only thing, but it's important to do. Yeah. I think that living in white skin and a white supremacy culture obviously confers power and privilege, but not to everyone and not in the same way, right? And so mm. I think that it's really important for me, I'm seeing for myself, I think it's really important to understand how many white people are caught up in the same crapola of white supremacy and um, the way that, that racism targets people of color are caught up in that without I see it clearly. And I'm not saying that um, racism targets white people. I'm saying that white people who are working class and poor or white people who have had no opportunity to understand how whiteness operates are swimming around ways that are completely not in their self-interest and you know, are continually encouraged, for example, to 
look to middle class and wealthy white people as their community when in fact their community are other people in the same economic and social situation that they're in. So I just, you know, I, I, I like to make sure that we're, um, we understand how many white people are, are hoodwinked by this whole thing well um, and, and invited to participate in ways that um, make no sense to them or anyone. I think that's a really good point. One piece of literature that has really gotten, frankly, over the years, consistent right. attention, but in this time continues to get attention is uh, supremacy culture, something that you wrote. And, you know, we'll put the link in the show notes for everybody, but I also want, we're going to walk through this, this research, this document. Uh, but before we do that, can you talk to us a little bit about how you arrived at the points that you made within the, the, the work that you wrote? Sure. So I've only written one book, um, and it, it's called The Emperor Has No Clothes, Teaching About Race and Racism to People Who Don't Want to Know. And it's basically was a chance for me to sit down and write all that I and other colleagues had learned about teaching about race and racism to people. So that's what that book is. And White Supremacy Culture uh, was written before the book, and I wrote it either, either 90 or 99, so a long time ago. Kenneth and I were doing a lot of work on the West Coast, and I had just come from a People's Institute for Survival and Beyond workshop with Ron Chisholm, and Daniel Buford and probably a few other people. And the People's Institute is based in New Orleans and is sort of, in my view, the granddaddy of people doing anti-racist um, education and training in my lifetime. And so we're our mentors and um, you know people that we love the work that we were doing. And so I was full of their wisdom when I wrote the piece. And I also had, just, and I can't remember the meeting, but I had just come from a meeting of predominantly white people where pretty much every dynamic in that sheet of poem in that article showed up and I was frustrated beyond belief and um, people say this and this is my only experience of this phenomenon which is that it wrote itself like I didn't I sat down on the computer itself and um, just sort of you know this is uh, this behavior this behavior this behavior this behavior this behavior this behavior it was like I was in a fury and then I showed it to my mentor, Sharon Martinez, who was running the Challenging White Supremacy Workshops at the time in, in the Bay Area. And she said, you can't list the, the terrible behaviors. You have to list antidotes. You have to talk about what to do. And so uh, that was such good advice. And so I added those uh, into it. And um, I will say, so it was written a long time ago. It was written without a crowd, which it means. And um, it left some things out. And it didn't. Um, so I'm actually... At, in this moment, my project is creating a website rather than another article, but a website based on the article so that it can be more flexible. Lots of people have used it and adapted it in the ways that people have used it and adapted it. I'm going to add a class lens, uh, tell some stories, give examples. So that's my current project. Can we talk about, like, because in, in this doc, you essentially have these different characteristics. I'd like to walk through the characteristics that you list and then really just have you just talk about each of them because again there are a lot of people that i respect i'm going to shout out dr oni blackstock because uh, she's the most recent person who i saw tweeting about this um and talking about this and but but it's it's a little it's all over youtube like i don't know if you know this like it's literally like i just saw a YouTube where somebody put this document up on a video and then like slow scrolled it and talked about it but i caught myself reading it and i was like i was like this is just this is like exactly like every work culture I've ever been a part of. Um, so I yeah. so let so let's do this. Let's start. Let's do each characteristic, and then and you just kind of explain, you know, how these attitudes and behavior, um, you know, 
reinforce or or drive white supremacy at work. Can we do that? Sure. Of course. Okay. So you start off your number. Your first one is perfectionism. Mm-hmm. I started with that one, I think, probably because that's the one I'm the most guilty of myself. So I, you know, I talk about how white supremacy culture is. The purpose of white supremacy is to disconnect us from each other and our, so that a few people can exert their control, cultural control, in ways that allow them to profit um, at our expense. And so um, perfectionism is this idea, very, very connected to professionalism, and this idea that, that there is a perfect way to do something, which is completely nonsense, and that there's somebody or some group of people who can determine what that is and encourage you to aspire to it. Mm-hmm. And then we internalize that, and I don't think I know a single person who actually feels completely comfortable with who they are and how they show up and how they're doing things because the culture is so adept at knowing like we're continually falling short. And if we're continually falling short, then we have to buy products to make ourselves look better and feel better. And it's just a vicious cycle. And the other thing I'll say about this list is that these are things that are used to perpetuate racism and white supremacy and to target people of color in different ways at different times. They impact everybody and they're not, they're toxic. There's nothing good about, about them at all at any time, unless you're the one trying to control other people and then uh, you're so disconnected from yourself. It's not even, you know, Trump is a very good example of <laughs> someone who's completely disconnected from anything. So um, so I think that professors use it as a tool of professionalism and as a tool to, um, you know, to, to keep people from, from positions of power and also to keep people off balance about who they are and their worth and their value. You know, it's, it's interesting. One of the things you say in here is um, you say little appreciation expressed among people for the work that others are doing. Appreciation that yeah. is expressed usually directed to those who get most of the credit anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And, and I would, and the, and the way that we internalize that, even when we're fighting hard not to, yeah. you know, it's like, I was talking to a friend yesterday who's applying for a position at a foundation. Um, it's completely, 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 completely clear to me, and I think to her, that she's not only qualified for the job, she's overqualified for the job. And my guess is they won't hire her because it's clear to them, too. You know, and right. it's, the, it's, the, it's so pernicious at the way that that works. It's like we don't, we're a lot of white people here who are not called to account for our lack of understanding about how racism and white supremacy operates uh, because it's not ever part of our job qualification. No one is evaluating us based on our ability to understand how that works. And we're about to invite somebody in who does understand, and that makes us really uncomfortable. So maybe never, you know, we need somebody who's going to not make us so uncomfortable all the time. That's part of how that works. It's just, and so it's interesting. So I, I was about to move to sense of urgency, but to your point, and the re- recommended antidotes for prism, you have develop a culture of appreciation where the organization takes time to make sure that the people's work and efforts are appreciated. Develop a learning organization where it's expected that everyone will make mistakes and those mistakes offer opportunities for learning. It's interesting, even in organizations where, where they will say things like, oh, it's OK to make mistakes. I've noticed that. And, I, and this is a common experience for most black folks at work is black and brown people, to be clear. Yeah. Um, right. we, don't, we don't have the same grace to make mistakes. No, you're not. That's right. It's interesting because I, I, you know, and I've had this conversation already, but like I had the conversation with a colleague, but where, you know, I I think I put like there was a a time at work I put a PowerPoint together. And (laughs) one, I just think I think PowerPoints overall are like have to be one of the biggest examples of like just subjectivity to the max, because like 
Like what you think yeah. is a good PowerPoint or or nice design, I may genuinely think is abhorrent. I may really not like the design of your PowerPoint, right? Like I, I might like it. Um, but anyway, um, I did a PowerPoint. Someone didn't think they didn't like it. And so then that that PowerPoint and me not doing well, me in their eyes, not doing well on a PowerPoint was then a justification for me to be blocked by a variety of different opportunities in very public ways. Right. And so right. it's like, what does it look like to really create objective, safe, equitable spaces for everybody? Right. 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 And what does it look like for that particular person to admit to themselves that they may not have the corner on how something needs to be done? And I mean, I remember, yeah, I mean, there's just so much, each one of these is, there's so much to that also interconnected. And two things come to mind. I remember Kenneth, so Kenneth was my mentor and my colleague for 12 years, and he died way too early in 2004. But as we were working together, I remember sort of saying to him, because my style, we were both about the same age, uh, but and my facilitation style is, is sometimes to say, to admit I've made a mistake or to, to show some vulnerability. And I said to Kenneth, you never, you never do that. You never show any vulnerability. Tell me, I can't afford to do that. He said, people are watching me, waiting for me to make a mistake. So even if I make one, I'm not going to say that I did because people are ready to pounce all over me for it. Right. You know, and again, just another example of my, of how long it took me to learn that. He had to sort of say that out loud to me, even though I've been working a while. So, um, yeah, I think there's that part of it. And I have another thought, but I'm sure it'll come to me as we keep talking. So here's the other story, which was that he... I tend to be the detail-oriented person, and sometimes I'd get really frustrated because I felt like he wasn't paying attention to, like, airfare or air flights or when we had to be somewhere. And yeah. once we both ended up in different airports, you know, and so I would, I started to develop a little bit of an attitude about how I was doing so much more than he was and more important. And we were having a conversation, and he said something to me like, I talked to so-and-so the other day, and I said, so-and-so, they were in our training a year ago. And he went, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I said, You're talking to them now? I said, oh, yeah, yeah. And then he proceeded to tell me that he was in relationships with everybody, um, with most people, in almost all the trainings over time, and that that's what he did. And I just was such a light bulb moment for me of like, oh my God, uh, this man, um, who's a, who is a brilliant trainer, there was no question about that, is you know leading and offering things that I've never even dreamt of being able to lead or offer that makes such a difference in this work while I'm sitting here feeling all superior because I know how to schedule a plane flight. So <laughs> it, you know, it was just, it was yeah. just like, um, you know, that, that so many of us so, and so many white people in particular, but so many of us are walking around thinking that we know how things should work when we don't know at all. Um, because we're open to how other ways of doing might actually offer so much more. So, I, man, I, I I appreciate that, and again, that 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 resonates with me too. Because I think about, especially if you have like these majority white organisms, you know, again, like people attract or they're attracted to people that are like them, right? And that's not just in appearance, but also in like ways of thinking and doing. And so, like, if you're in yeah. a space, the majority are really good at tasks or really good at you know things off a box. If there's someone who can do those things, but like that's just not their wiring then that person is mm-hmm. automatically seen as a problem or as inferior in some way. In reality, it's like, okay, I don't need, there's eight of y'all who tick off boxes and who are very like transactional. Is it possible right. for me to be different and at the same time, yeah. like be just as good, if not add more value than you do, perhaps? Like, right. <laughs> I, I think, I think for me, transparently, I think the one of the biggest mistakes I think I've made in my career is that 
I think I've been too transferable about me wanting to learn and grow because I say, hey, I'd like to learn this. I don't know this. But what mm-hmm. I've learned is in, in like in the spirit of perfectionism, when you communicate that you don't know something or you're new to something, I've just learned that we don't black and white people just don't have the grace to, to communicate that they don't right. know. They don't have the grace to grow. They just don't. Right. Uh, right. Okay. So and it's, it's infuriating. I mean, it's completely infuriating. It is. Um, and it's a complete loss. To, I mean, it's a complete loss. I mean, I think the thing that I would like to get across is my, you know, my audience, my commitment is to working with other white people is, is for, for those of us listening to this to understand that the deep violence in that and, you know, working side by side with people who feel like they are not allowed to offer their vulnerability or their desire to grow and learn because we're going to go, oh my God, it's, it's, it's intense. So you have a lot of terms here. You know, we might have to do a part two, but 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 I want I want to see how many of these we can get through. And so I'm going to back sure. up and let you talk more. Um, sense of urgency. I think that again, the, the point of urgency. So every organization I've ever worked with operates in a huge sense of urgency, and everything is so critically important right this minute, and it completely perpetuates racism because you you. The example I'll give is we were doing a work with a with an organization, we were doing an anti-workshop with an organization of mostly lawyers um, that do very good work on a statewide level. And they had just sort of unpacked all the ways in which individuals of color on the staff and in the community that they served were not feeling heard, were not included in decision-making, were not, um, their ideas were shut down, sort of what we've just been talking about. And an emergency came up. And I think there was a, there might have been an arrest or, Something, something urgent happened in the community, and um, and the and the white leadership, the white lawyers felt like they had to respond right this minute. And if they didn't respond right this minute, the, the organization would be at stake. And right in front of our eyes, all of the dynamics that had been named were playing out in front of us. And the two of us who were facilitating the workshop um, tried to suggest to them, this is you know this is happening right in front of our eyes. We know that this does you urgent, and we suggest that you sit down and you take a breath, and you understand that what, what that there are other people in the community who are handling it in this moment, and that what you all need to do is really sit and take a breath and see how you can approach this differently. And so they just, you know, repeated the, you know, you could see it. The, the white people were circled around making all these decisions, and the people of color were ringing them on the outside, trying to listen in, and then getting disgusted and walking away. And it was just things are urgent if we're not paying attention and we haven't set up the relationships and we haven't set up the procedures to say when things get literally urgent this is what we're going to do. feel urgent but they aren't this is what we're going to do and is, is this really as urgent as we think it is because maybe we need to because it's urgent we need to take a breath we need to take a breath and make sure that we're all in this together rather than walking all over each other in our attempt to prove something which is to prove like we're the organization that's going to respond like that, right. even if the way that we respond, you know, tramples over people. So, and then I think a lot of us internalize urgency. A lot of white people feel like if we don't act right now, if I don't fix this right now, then I'm not going to be able to prove I'm a good white person. And so then we go in and fix something and we make it worse because we haven't stopped to take a breath, to consult with other people, to see if our, if our intuition or our impulse is actually the right one. I've seen that happen over and over and over again. Let's talk about quantity over quality. Um, well, you know, we live in a capitalist society and we love to measure things and we love to believe that value has to do with 
amounts of things, usually money. And again, so I see some of the thunder patterns, I'm just sighing deeply, some of the thunder patterns, all the thunder patterns that I've seen in my lifetime in work is thunders um, trying to get people to prove that they're effective by the numbers of things. How many people did you impact? Not the quality of things, not the depth of things, not the sustainability of things, but you know, the number of things. Just such a limited measure of how we're doing. And the research I've done on culture shift shows that it's actually not a numbers game. It's not, we don't need a majority of people to shift culture. We need deep relationships. We need generational change. Mm. We need uh, clusters of people uh, coming to new, new beliefs uh, simultaneously, but they don't have to be a majority. So I, I just think it's good to be able to have a sense of what we think progress is, but often we aim towards, I do a lot of work in schools and the story I often tell, so I'm sorry if anybody's heard the story before, uh, how our schools often, if not always, often are uh, have a story that what they're trying to do is prepare students for success. And what they mean by that is we want students to stay in school, get good grades, graduate, get a job, and go shopping. And that's mm-hmm. sort of the, and if we can measure, if we can measure that we've done that, it doesn't matter if our students are leading meaningful lives. We're not measuring that. We're not measuring if students know how to find themselves. And we're not measuring if students have gotten in touch with their spiritual side or their artistic side. We're not measuring whether students know how to be in relationship with themselves and with each other. We're not measuring the things that matter. You know, we just don't know how to measure this. We're obsessed with graduation rates and, you know, how much money people are making. You have another one here about worship of the written word. Mm-hmm. So I'll give an example if you will give an example, but okay, this is just, this, I mean, this is our history, yeah. sort of the theft of indigenous land, the theft of land from Mexico, the broken treaties, the enslavement of you, it's all built on worship of the written word and the whole, you know, all of our Southwest and Midwest states that became U.S. property after the Mexican-American War and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, all of that theft of land was made possible because Congress passed all kinds of legislation requiring people to ownership, and most people live in a culture where that's not how people know that they own land. So that's just one example, and and, and just the, the ways that we hide behind if it's not written down, that it's not, it doesn't exist. Only wisdom is if it's written down, and and then always it's written down by certain people. We'll what, what what comes to mind for you? Well, no, so so here's so here's where I found the application interesting. So there's a way that I believe those in power and in the majority will essentially place the burden on the oppressed to have evidence yeah. like you know yeah. tangible documented evidence but then yeah. in the instances where that evidence is undeniable then at best it simply just saves that oppressed person from being harmed but it doesn't necessarily guarantee justice for that oppressed person no it's, or they'll say it's not written right or the form is not filled out correctly right or or, or or well we don't we still don't have all the facts or well you know right you know what about the other right. person's side and so like there's still this like it's 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 really right. like it's such a jig like because it's yeah. <laughs> you're gonna lose but it's just the question just is while this may have saved you from getting fired it's not actually going to absolve your name completely after all these other people right. said something right 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 um, yeah and, yeah it's also I think about the Tend case where Bhagat Singh Tend sued the Supreme Court for citizenship and he was um, from India and he was suing based on how science classified people from India as Caucasoids. Hmm. And 
the year before, a Japanese person who had done the same thing lost the case because people from Japan were, were classified as mongoloid, so they were not white. But the Supreme Court said, well, it's true science classifies you as caucasoid, but you're not seen as white by the common white man, therefore you're not white. So it's a written word, but also the word is, as you said, you know, controlled and considered by those in power. And whose written words will be paid attention to and whose won't. Yeah, I, I think about Breonna Taylor. Yeah. We we know uh, that she was murdered by the state in her own bed. Right. But then when you go back right. and you look at the report, it's completely blank. Right. right. right? And so, like, right. anybody with good sense right. should be right. able to understand that Breonna Taylor's bullet-ridden body and that piece of paper are not congruent. So, right. one of those ladies is lying. Breonna's own blood testifies that she is not lying. So... Right. Why are Breonna Taylor's murderers still free? Right. It's the worship of the written word. Yeah. Sandra Bland, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Sandra Bland as well. Right. And and countless others. Uh, Tony McDade. And it's it's frustrating. But I think about that. I think about how it's just again, I think about like how manipulative and use the word pernicious. It's a really appropriate word is that, you know, documentation really matters until it doesn't. I always tell marginalized people to document everything because again, while, while documentation may not ever get in, it might not ever hold anybody accountable. It at the very least can make sure that you don't get fired or it can delay you getting fired um, because you have yeah. something hard evidence that, you know, if someone was says, well, you didn't you're like, well, no, I have this. What you're saying is clearly not true. Um, okay. So paternalism was another uh, characteristic that you had in your research. Yeah, I'm going to bow here to a man named Paul Kibble, who does a lot of writing on Christian hegemony. Um, but it, it's just the way in which and so, so many of these intersect. And, and I'm adding one called um, uh, qualified. I don't know that that's on the list explicitly there, but it, mm. it's the way in which we'll um, assume that um, because we're white, we are qualified to act and make decisions about things that are outside our lived experience. Hmm. And I think about, you know, when I taught it, when I wasn't on the faculty in educational leadership and when I taught undergraduate students in education, you know, most of them are young white women who are coming into teaching because they um, love to do. And, uh, and please know I admire teachers beyond belief because they work so hard for so little. Sure. And um, and yet they, they come in, these young white women come in very idealistic and very hopeful and they have no experience, most of them, working with color and very little preparation for doing that and yet have not internalized that they're not at all qualified to do the job that they're preparing for. And the education system hasn't internalized that either. And so um, just the ways in which I mean, I got almost every helping institution um, is operating out of sense of paternalism. Like we know, what, we know what's better for you without consulting you or asking you about your lived experience. And I think about doing work with the Department of Social Services, where it's about a woman who, in order to make it through her week, had to visit 11 different offices in the Department of Social Services to account for herself. You know, and, and it's, it's the way in which, um, you know, if, if we look at Congress, banks are completely involved in writing policies having to do with banks. Yeah. Um, poor people and working people have no say uh, in policies that impact their lives. And the laws that impact their lives are written by people who think that they need to be punished for being working class and poor mm. or who think that they need to be exploited or who think that, you know, who, who have absolutely no care or concern 
or lived experience for the most part of what it means to be black, brown, working class, poor. And paternalism is just this idea that we know better than you. And it, you know, it can be very deeply embedded in religious thinking and Christian thinking. And um, I, I will admit, I, I want to make sure I understand there's a lot of liberatory thinking grounded in Christian thinking too. Uh, it's just that it's sort of the, the idea that uh, we know best, we're going to convert you to our ways. And you know, that's what white supremacy is all about. You know, the, the goal here might like us if, if you if if we can exploit you more that way mm-hmm. assimilation uh, if, and if not assimilation exploitation and, and violence you know it's just it's all based on this idea that we know better and one of the things that we know better is that profits more important than people I think that's true uh, ultimately I think I think it comes down to a lot of power and control right and so you know, one of my larger concerns right now, even as corporations um, and larger organizations, um, we're looking at, you know, Black Lives Matter and people are taking these statements and stances and organizations are mobilizing their employee resource groups and, and different things to have these uh-huh. conversations and do real talk and all this kind of stuff. And how much of this is about really hearing and including their marginalized employees and how much of this is about, yeah. like, really making sure that, like, you're retooling reshaping your organization to be equitable and inclusive or how much of this is really about you just trying to put some gates and borders around this to maintain control right that's my biggest concern i think there's two parts to this so i think there can be conscious paternalism and then there can be unconscious paternalism and probably lots of gradations in between and so I, for one, actually completely hate the term diversity um, because I, I don't think that they, it's, it's about window dressing or table dressing or whatever term you want to use. Sure. It doesn't ask the question, what are we including people into? Because if we were to ask that question, we would have to admit that a lot of what we're inviting people into is toxic. And so it's not about including people. It's about reshaping everything. And I think that's what I was talking about in terms of what we need to be wary of in a is that some of the backlash is going to be very direct and hateful, and a lot of it is going to be about accommodation. And forget about justice. Let's just accommodate, accommodate, accommodate. And so I think that the and paternalism really plays a role, and, and we can see it reflected in older leaders often, um, people who've been around a long time, who's scared they're going to lose power by these young people who are coming up full of fervor and, and demanding justice. Um, and some of us have, have accommodated for so long in order just often survive that we've forgotten what the goal is and and some of the paternalism is and i'll speak for myself it's, mm. it's sort of the internalized entitlement internalized belief that i ought to do things i'm not qualified to do and i yeah. um it didn't require any intent on my part and you know i tell a story on the website and it might be in the book i can't remember of essentially pushing my black colleague aside in a in a, in a environment where i knew absolutely everything um, this is a different colleague, a colleague named Kamaya Marsharia, another wise and incredible organizer. And he was talking, he was in the Delta, the room was packed full of African-American people living in the Delta, economically poor, uh, culturally incredibly genius and rich. And, um, you know, I didn't think he was doing a good job, so I walked up to the front and pushed him aside. And I didn't know anything about wow. about organizing in the Delta, right? Mm. But I just, I had this instinct in my body that he wasn't doing it, and I needed to fix it. Um, it was, it was, um, 
and, and that's so that there's that it's the way that I it's internalized this paternalism and this idea that I know how to do things um, we just cause so much harm and again it's a complete tribute to Maya that we're still friends <laughs> and he actually didn't say anything to me for years and then finally I started thinking about it and I went Kamayu what about that day and he went oh I figured you'd figure it out sooner or later wow you know so there were there were like five years in there where Kamaya was not, I was not in genuine relationship with him because he was waiting for me to figure it out. You know, it's just. To your example, I think about it in ways that like, so it's interesting. You have these, you have these cultures that are, that are, that are very racist, right? Like you have these organizations that have harmed black yeah. people for a while. Um, but it just so happens that there's a certain confluence of events that are forcing organizations that have been historically harmful to black and brown people. Right. Now they're having to right. do things differently. But what's challenge, what's right. interesting is, is that some of the same people who just six months ago were very harmful are now self-appointing themselves as leaders to have these yeah. conversations, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's a certain like I think of course that's emotionally inauthentic, but I think that's also a certain level of entitlement and paternalism in that. Yeah, so, totally, totally. And again, I think, I mean, and yeah. So this is my job. It's not your job. But as someone who's who's identifies as white, who is white, who lives a white life, um, and who thinks a lot about what it means to be in relationship with other white people. Part of what I found is to encourage myself and other white people to think about what are we actually, what are we doing here, and what is um, the cost to you of this posturing, and what would it be like for you to actually authentically sit down with yourself and go, what am I afraid of? What kind of help do I need? Um, you know, where do, where do things really need to change? And I, I think all of us need to develop a much better practice of what I would call radical honesty with ourselves about why we want to live in a world um, where we actually are able to have authentic relationships with other people and ourselves and live in a, in a world where people are well cared for and people can thrive and um, we, we don't have to be so afraid of violence and, and all these other things. So, yeah. So I'm going to pick one last one. Fear of open conflict. Yeah. That goes back to perfectionism and some of the other things that we talked about. The story I'll tell is that well, it, it, it's, a, it's a common story, which is that some racism is happening, um, and rather than deal with the racism that's happening, we will label or target the person who's naming it, um, and sometimes that happens to white people too, and because we're so afraid of the truth-telling that's going to happen if we actually talk about how racism is happening. Um, and so it's just this, like we can't, we're, we're too afraid to talk about things that are, are real and they're going to have emotion attached to them and might lead us as white people to feel like we've done something wrong or we might essentially be bad in some kind of way. So let's not talk about it. Let's blame the person who's trying to make us uncomfortable. This is attached to right to comfort. Let's blame the, the people who are calling us in and say that there's something wrong with them so that we, we don't have to we don't have to feel our feelings. We don't have to uh, be uncomfortable. We don't have to look at ourselves and we can stay in what feels like control. And it's such a... Um, Again, it's wanting such harm both to the other people but and also to, to ourselves. Um, the ability to sort of say, bring it on. Okay, tell me more. Tell me more. And that was so racist. Okay, tell me more. I want to yeah. know. Tell me more. Such a different energy. I mean, it, it's, it's opening. Or, you're racist. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. There's nowhere. It's like you're building conflict and you're not 
It's like, well, tell me, tell me how am I racist? Yeah, I want to know because I, I think I probably am. So tell me. <laughs> you know, there's, there's so much more fruit there. Even if you end up not agreeing with what they say, it's like there's more fruit, more juice, more ability to. It's like we can handle this. We can sit in this discomfort. And it, in fact, if we don't learn to do that, we're not going to. I, but I see. I think though, like in the context of like a like a, a business, like the fear with that is that if I admit that I'm racist. If I admit that I've harmed you, then that then gives you by way to pursue the company. Right. And so like, there's this fear of creating risk or opening your company up, open yourself up to risk by admitting your faults, you know. So people just figure out a way to deal with that. I mean, this, um, <laughs> I love how you just dismiss you know, that. <laughs> oh, come on. I mean, you know, I don't I don't, you know, legalese and laws and policies are to service of connection mm. and not in service of fear and abuse, right? It's like Trump saying, you can only come to the thing if you're, if you're not going to sue me for getting the, the coronavirus. No. And, and I would also say, for me, so one of the racial equity principles that right, um, you'll see this, this list of characteristics, but you, and you'll also see our racial equity principles. And one of them, uh, and one of the ones I love the most is called organizing mind. And what we mean by that is you start with the chorus. People are, oh, you're preaching to the chorus. I go, yes, we do, because our chorus is very out of tune. So let's get in tune, and then we can start preaching to people outside the chorus and bring them into the chorus. So it's like start with the people who want what you want and figure out what your power is, figure out what the risks are that you're willing to take. There, each one reach one, teach one, as Sharon Martinez would say. And so in a, in a corporate environment, it's like figuring out what are the roadblocks that we need to get rid of so that we can actually do this or where are we willing to have authentic conversation regardless of the risk um, and can we start doing that so it's like figure out what's in your power to do and do it you don't wait for permission don't wait for um you know it, it's like we, there are lots of things that we can do uh and build our power that work people to give us permission to do it Ugh, i love it I as, love as it. we are as we are witnessing across the country and across the globe right all these beautiful people many young people not waiting for permission I love it. Bring no. down statues, cut off Columbus's head. And, uh, you know, you it's, know. it's brought it's, me joy, it's, frankly, it's, to see. Beautiful thing to see right now. It is. Yeah. It is. Um, Dr. Oaken, this has been um, a phenomenal conversation. I just want to thank you so much for being a guest. I want to make sure everybody knows um, that the document that we were walking through and that I picked a few characteristics out of for uh, for our guests to, to want to beautifully expound upon um, it's going to be in the show notes and we're going to also be promoting it. Uh, you'll see it this week as social media and things of that nature. So make sure that you check it out. Um, this has been living corporate. You know, we do this every single week. We're having conversations, real talk in the corporate world uh, that center and amplify marginalized voices at work. Uh, we'll make sure you catch you all next time. Uh, in the meantime, between now and next time, we're all over Beyonce's Internet. You just type in living corporate. We'll pop up. Uh, we'll catch us on uh, Instagram at living corporate. And uh, man, if you have anything you want to talk to us about, just contact us through the website, living-corporate.com. Please say the dash, living-corporate.com. Till next time, y'all, this has been Zach, and you've been listening to Dr. Tema Oaken, activist, educator, speaker, organizer. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. 
Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.